Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. I am super pumped to join us today to have Dr. Ryan Mullins. Um, he's done a lot of work on like models of God, philosophy of time, um, evil, so much more. Um, Ryan, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing today? Doing pretty good. Good, good. Well, I'm excited for today. We're going to be talking about um, like a little paper you wrote. We're looking at um, a clever title called One Hell of a Problem for Divine Love. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about like who you are and what get you interested in like the topic that we're looking at today and specifically like the paper and whatnot? Yeah, so I'm Dr. R.T. Mullins. I am a professor of philosophy at the University of Lucerne in Switzerland and Palm Beach Atlantic University in Florida. Uh, so I've done a lot of work on everything you mentioned, but I've also done a bunch of work on the philosophy of emotions and God's emotional life. Uh, and so that's where this kind of came in was my friend Jordan Wesling had written a book that looked at what, what exactly is God's love. And it talked about philosophy of emotion. And I was asked to be part of a symposium where we were all just kind of like just critiquing Jordan, just being like, just give him a little bit of, give him a little bit of hell for, for everything he said in his book. And, and so this is where eventually where this, this paper came out of is, is that symposium. Mm, yeah. Super cool. So Ryan, do you want to talk a little bit about like um, something that I thought about when I was going through this was thinking that like, what is love? Um, so like, what is love? Like um, first off, maybe like, what's like a first impression you have, like, what is love? And then like, what is love in light of looking at like what Christianity teaches about what love is? Yeah. So when you first look at like just the Bible, like, you know, typically that's where Christians want to start. It, it's really difficult because you've got a lot of different texts that are very suggestive, but they don't give you a really clear, solid definition of love. So we're told that God is love. We're told that we're supposed to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength and whatnot. We're told to love our neighbor as ourselves. And these are all really interesting claims. And then you also see the Bible use lots of different words for love uh, that have these different kind of like uh, connotations, uh, like brotherly love, romantic love, moral obligations, value, emotions, uh, empathy, compassion. It's got a lot of different things going on in the background. It's all very complicated. And so the Christian scriptures, like, I think they put a big emphasis on love, but, but they don't give you like this clear definition of what love is. And I find that slightly frustrating. So what you have to do if you want a definition of love is you're going to have to look you're going to have to do some theology and you're going to have to look at what like the, like the Christian tradition has said. So let me give you a quick example of this. So, so classical theism, so for most of Christian tradition, uh, when they're, when they're classical theist, they, they say that God, uh, God's love or just love in general involves two desires. So the claim is that if you love someone, you desire the good of the beloved, whoever that person is, you desire like their well-being, and then you desire unity with them. And, and so that's the claim. And I guess that's fine, but I don't think that really tells me what love is. All that tells me is that, you know, you and I have desires and I'm like, well, we all have a bunch of desires and that doesn't really get me any closer to understanding what love could possibly be. So not only does this fail to actually answer my question, like what is love? It also introduces like more questions and more conundrums because now I've got this other question. It's like, like, why does love give rise to these two desires? And personally, I desire the satisfaction of having my actual questions answered. But I think classical theism just keeps introducing more questions, not any answers. Hmm. Yeah, that's super helpful, Ryan. Um, so, like, one of the things that you talked about that was super interesting is, like, classical theism. So you say that, like, in their view, something, um, love is something like this idea of, like, desiring their good and then, like, unity with them. So, like, what then, like, the, what does it mean then for us to say that, like, God loves us? Like, surely as, like, a Christians, we want to say that, like, God loves us. Um, so what do you think that means? And then, like, how do you think, like, how do we view that in light of like the classical tradition? Yeah. So sticking with just classical theism, the claim is really explicit, uh, like in Herman Bavinck and in Augustine, the claim is that all of God's love is really self-love. 
Like God just loves himself. And, and now personally, that leaves me feeling unloved by God. But the classical tradition, they try to tell me that, you know, God still somehow loves me. I just, I just demur at this suggestion. And, and this is because classical theism tells me that all of God's actions, all of God's thoughts, all of God's feelings, they are all entirely grounded in himself. This is because God is impassable, which means that nothing outside of God can move or cause or influence God in any possible way for his emotions, for his beliefs or his actions. And so a God like this is, is this, this God's love is completely uninfluenced by anything that I am, think, and do. And I've got a whole chapter on this in my book uh, on God and emotion, where I just talk about the uninfluenced love of God. And they're very explicit about this in the classical tradition. So all this does is just leave me asking another question, which is like, why on earth would God desire to be united with me? Because that's the classical claim is they're like, yeah, God loves himself, blah, blah, blah. But also God, you know, God's got these two desires. Now, it sounds to me that if, if, if a God like this has any sort of desire to be united with me, that's going to be utterly arbitrary. And, 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 because, and I take it as obvious that if God's going to be perfectly rational, he's not going to have arbitrary desires. So I think there's really something like really seriously problematic going on here. So here's where my dissatisfaction lies. I think it introduces a contradiction in the Christian, Christian thought. So classical theism rules out the possibility that God could find me desirable because God's love is supposed to be uninfluenced. And then the classical tradition also explicitly tells me that it is impossible for God to have desires because God is perfectly satisfied in himself. So I find it really confusing when classical theism tells me that God has a desire for my well-being and a desire to be united with me. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense because, because you've got this absurd contradiction right in the middle of Christian thought about the nature of God. You're saying on the one hand, God's got all these desires for you. And on the other hand, you're saying God doesn't have any desires at all. I think Christianity deserves much better than what classical theism is offering. Mm. So when you're looking at like classical theism and the problem of divine love, what you're trying to get at, Ryan, is like, we're saying like, hey, like um, the classical theists want to say that God loves us and he's got like, desires for us, like for our good and like unity with him. Um, but then you're like, hey, like go back to like this Bavink and Augustine and they're saying like God has no desires at all. And it seems like there's some sort of tension there, which like, like what would a classical theist say in response? Because it seems pretty obvious the way you put it out um, to bring up this tension they'll usually say that what God loves in you is what he finds in himself. Uh, that's like, so Bobbing's really clear about that. And it's not anything about you. Bobbing like, is really at pains to make that very clear. And I'm just like, okay, that's pretty bad. Uh, Augustine does it slightly differently. He'll go, well, God can, all love is either um, loving the thing for itself or uh, using something towards getting towards whatever is actually intrinsically lovable. So, so either you, God's the only thing that's intrinsically lovable um, in Augustine's story. So you and I are not intrinsically lovable. So mm -hmm. when God loves us, it's, he's just using us is the way Augustine yeah. starts out. But then, it, but it gets worse though. So Augustine's like, yeah, God doesn't really love you. He like, he's using you. But then he goes, well, actually God can't use you. He has no use for you because God's perfectly self-satisfied. So he has no needs or anything. So you're actually useless to God. And, and so I'm like, okay, so. You started out telling me either God loves me or uses me. And then now you're telling me God can't even use me. So God doesn't love me and he can't use me. I'm just useless. Like, I don't like this is just I, I think it's just a, a massive, massive contradiction right there in the the, the actual classical story of, of divine love. Yeah, it seems super weird. Like if I was going to say something like I love Ryan Mullins and it's like, well, like, why do you love Ryan Mullins? Like, well, well, he has brown hair. Like I have brown hair and mm -hmm. he lives in Pennsylvania and I'm from Pennsylvania. And like I bring up all these things like like it seems very narcissistic to just be like, I'm looking at the things about Ryan that are like me and I'm amazing and da da da. So I, I think there's something right about it. Like that, that would be weird to ground that in the nature of love. 
I'm glad you mentioned the narcissistic claim because, uh, and so in Tom Ward, uh, Thomas J. Ward's new book, uh, Pluriform Love, I think is what, it was, what it's called. He actually makes this kind of argument saying that the God of classical theism is the, the greatest narcissist of all, like, because, mm -hmm. because his only can love himself and cannot love anything else. So, so, so yeah, it's, I, I think there's really something to that critique. <laughs> so one of the things, um, that like, we're talking about is like Jordan Wesling. Like mm -hmm. what, what is his account of divine love? And excuse me, yeah. as I go grab something real quick. Cool. Keep going. Yeah. So, so Jordan has this really cool book called love divine, where he offers a systematic account of God's love. Uh, and it's a really excellent book. I highly recommend it. I've been using it a lot for some uh, writing projects I'm working on. And so what, what Jordan Wesling does is he has this thing that he calls a value account of love. So he tells us that love involves a trio of value. So these three values, so what is love? Love is valuing a person's existence and valuing their flourishing. And then it also involves valuing friendship with that person. So this account, this value account, I think what it does is it answers my questions about what, it, what exactly it means to say God loves us. So when God loves someone, God deems it worthy that this person exists. God sees it like the value in this person existing. And then when God loves someone, God deems it worth pursuing uh, the flourishing of that person. And you might be like, well, why? Well, because God sees the value of that person's flourishing. And then when God loves someone, God deems it worth pursuing a friendship with that person because God sees the value of friendship with that person. So this value account of love, I think, actually gives us some more interesting answers to what to like, what is love? And then what does it mean that God loves us? So where is Wesling on like this whole classical theist debate exactly? So he he's going to be in my camp where he's going to say, I can't go full-blown classical theist. I'm going to have to reject divine impassibility. Uh, I can't remember if he wants to reject timelessness. I'm pretty sure he does. Um, but yeah, he's, he's, he doesn't think you can get the full classical story. So he's, he's going to be like a neoclassical theist in that mm -hmm. sense, where you can't have all of the classical package. You have to make some modifications. Hmm. Well, this is helpful. So we got Wesling and we're looking at his trio where he's going to say like God values like our existence, he values like our flourishing and he values like friendship um, with us. Mm -hmm. So then like, how does this play into the question of like, why would God desire a relationship with us? Um, maybe before we dive into like how we view this in light of classical theism, like what would you think personally about like, why would this, like how would this account help us to like see like God would desire a relationship with us? So I think it does better than classical theism because what Jordan's account does is it entails a rejection of impassibility, like I mentioned a, a second ago. Uh, so on the value account of love, God is going to be influenced by considerations that are external to the divine nature. So in particular, like the potential value of human persons, like that really is a consideration for when God's thinking, like, what kind of universe do I want to create? And once those beings are up and running, then he's like, okay, you know, they really do have this value. So now some people are going to say like, oh, I don't like that because, you know, I, I, impassibility is really important. I, I think that's fine. Like just get rid of impassibility. I don't see getting rid of impassibility as a problem because impassibility is an anti-biblical doctrine that teaches the exact opposite of the consistent passable depiction of God that you see in scripture. And as I see it, like just getting rid of anti-biblical doctrines, like that's, that's a good thing for Christian theology. Um, but let me, let me say a bit more about like what I think is, is going on with Jordan's account, why it's so good. So Jordan's account of love, uh, of divine love, when you have this connected with passibility, it has a really nice systematic connection with God's omniscience, with God's goodness, and God's perfect rationality. So since God's perfectly rational, God is going to be appropriately responsive to reasons and considerations of value. Those are one kind of reason to be responsive to. 
and that God will always act for objectively good reasons that further his purposes. And so since God's perfectly good, God's always going to do what he has most objective reason to do. And he's going to exhibit the most virtuous character when he's doing it. And then since God's omniscient, God will know like what all the objective values are that are worth responding to. And so when you've got Jordan's account of love here, human persons have this great value. God's omniscient. So he's going to know that human persons have this great value. And then as perfectly rational and, and perfectly good, God's going to be appropriately responsive to the value of human persons. So what Jordan's account of love does when you get rid of impassibility and bring in passibility is it makes God's love perfectly rational. And so instead of having this completely arbitrary divine love, like we had before on classical theism, you've got a perfectly rational understanding of divine love. And I think that's, that's a huge, huge uh, bonus for, for this view. Mm. So we got this view um, that's super helpful. So like, how does this compare then to like classical theism and like the question of like, why would God desire a relationship with us? Yeah. So what I, what I mentioned before was that you've got this classical claim that God's got these desires and you're like, cool. But then you also have the classical claim going, well, but God doesn't have any desires, yeah. uh, you know, and you're, you're useless and you're just like, oh gosh, okay, what's going on here? Well, so Wesling's account, what it does is avoids all these kind of problems. And then it also explains why God actually has those desires. Uh, so, so the classical tradition is right that divine love does involve the desire for the well-being and a desire for unity with like somebody, somebody that you love. But you've got to ask, like, why would God have those desires towards us? And the answer is really simple. So God sees that you have value and he deems you to be worthy of attention and action. And so in philosophy of emotion, this is what we call caring or concern. So cares and concerns, they ground dispositions to have emotions and desires. So if you care about something, you're going to be disposed to paying attention to it and you're going to be disposed to acting on its behalf. So if you care about something, like you're going to care about, you're going to have various desires to see those things flourish and to be united with them and, and so on. And so Wesling's account, what it does is for divine love is it explains why it's perfectly rational for God to love humans and why it's perfectly rational for God to have desires for our well-being and our flourishing and then why God desires friendship with us. And I think it's really pretty impressive for a single book where you just have this huge mess in the, in, in the history of Christian thought where we can't really give a satisfying account of love. And then Jordan's like, here we go, blah, blah, blah. Nice systematic account of divine love that actually gives answers that are satisfying. It's, it's, it's impressive. Mm -hmm. It's weird, like thinking about like, it just seems like with so much of what we're talking about, Ryan, there's like this like very like surface, not, not surface level in a bad way, but, like surface level tension of, um, like saying that like God desires a relationship with us or like God loves us. And then like classical theism where you want to say like God doesn't have desires um, and things like this. So like, it just seems to me like, like surely the classical theist could come up with some sort of story, but like, if you want to hold these things, it seems like there's just a very obvious tension mm -hmm. um, right in front of you. If you're, if you're trying to hold a classical theism and like still hold on to these things. Yeah. What you see a lot is when people really start to notice the tensions they start punting to mystery really fast. Uh, they start trying to like say like, it's all metaphor. It's all uh, anthropomorphism. It's all, you know, and they start doing all these things to explain away what you see in scripture and explain away your intuitions about, you know, desires are important. Like, why is it a bad thing if God has desires? Be like, oh, cause then God needs me. And I'm like, God doesn't need me. He wants me. There's a difference between mm -hmm. wanting and needing. We learned that as children. Why don't you understand that difference anymore? So it, I, I feel like a lot of really obvious intuitions just start going out the window really fast when you're trying to just square the circle of classical theism and, and divine love. Mm. 
That's super helpful. So you talked about Ryan, um, just to repeat, Wesley's mm-hmm. like trio of, um, or I guess we didn't talk about the trio of assumptions. We talked about oh, yeah. what divine love is. Um, like what is Wesley's like trio of assumptions here that's going to help us as we get into the second um, part where we're going to start talking about universalism and whatnot? Yeah. So, so so since I've given all this like really high praise for Jordan's book, like we're going to start like criticizing it a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so Jordan's got a couple different assumptions that he makes really explicit in his book. And then a third assumption that I've told him like, you you have to make this assumption too. And he goes, yeah, okay, I do have to make this assumption. <laughs> so here's the first one that Jordan takes to be true, which is this value account of divine love. That's true. You know, Jordan thinks that that's true. And he gives a whole book length argument for why he thinks it's true. The second assumption uh, that I need in order to start critiquing Jordan is that he has this really nice argument for um, for how we should think about eschatology or like the final judgment. So when we're talking about eschatology, we're talking about things like heaven, hell, resurrection, uh, this kind of stuff. So when it comes to hell, there's a bunch of different theories about hell. Like what exactly is hell like? And Jordan goes, well, how do you how do you navigate those? How do you figure out which theories of hell are right or wrong? And he's like, ah, well, we can ask this question. If a particular theory of hell, is it consistent with this account of divine love? So we've got these trio of values. If a theory of hell entails that like one or more of those, those, those trio of values can't be satisfied, then there's something wrong with that theory of hell. So it gives us this nice account for assessing different theories of hell. Now, those are the two assumptions that Jordan makes really explicit in his book. Here's the third one, though, that I've pointed out that Jordan has to make. And, and he does say, yeah, that's right, is if you believe in, in the book of Revelation, like the, like the last chapters of, of Revelation, it says really explicitly that God's going to defeat evil one day. Like one day there'll be no more tears, no more sin, no more evil, blah, blah, blah. So Jordan's going to have to affirm that one day God will ultimately defeat evil. And so these three assumptions, I think, are are interesting that seem right to me, but they're going to have some interesting uh, uh, entailments for how we think about the doctrine of hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like one of the things you talked about, Ryan, is like we have this trio, um, like you're going to argue then that this, that this like idea of like Wesleyan's view of divine love is going to entail universalism. Um, obviously Wesleyan like doesn't like that and he wants to resist the entailment, but like you think that this is resistant, this entailment can't be resisted. So like, why do you think um, like his view of divine love is going to entail universalism? Like, how's he going to respond? And like, why do you think that ultimately like his view is going to fall short here. Yeah. So let me define universalism and then we can start see seeing like how this is supposed to go. So universalism is the view that at some point everyone is going to be saved. Like everyone's going to go to heaven. And so universalism says that God does punish sinners. Like, like, like our sins, our wickedness, those things, they really will be punished. You really will have to like to, to face up to God for all the things you've done, but God's going to put everything right. And the end result is everyone eventually repents. Everyone eventually does seek uh, forgiveness. Everyone eventually does be, become reconciled to God and everyone uh, uh, goes to heaven. So Jordan wants to resist that. He, he wants to say like, ah, universalism sounds cool, but I don't know if it's fully biblical. I don't, I don't quite like that. And he, he wants to say that nothing about his theory of divine love entails universalism. But I think that it's just a really obvious entailment uh, from his view of love and the claim that God will one day defeat evil. And here's why. So notice two things. So first, universalism, it gives you a story about how God ultimately defeats evil. Because one day, all sinners, they're going to repent, and they're going to seek friendship with God. So all sin will be punished. All hearts will be built in righteousness. And there's going to be no more sin, no more evil. So you do get the defeat of evil. And then here's the second thing. So universalism, 
uh, it doesn't diverge from the trio of love. Universalism is perfectly consistent with the claim that God values the existence, flourishing, and friendship of all humans. Uh, and it's not clear to me that any of the other theories on hell can do that. I don't think you can get the defeat of evil and no divergence at all from divine love on any of the other theories. Whereas Jordan's going to be like, oh, gosh, maybe I don't want that. Yeah, that's the big idea. That's what we're going to be doing here. So looking at the idea that like you think like universalism, like that's the only view we're going to really like truly finally like defeat evil. And that's the big push um, when looking at divine love for like why like universalism is like right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the big idea. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's super helpful. Um, so then like let's look at like the traditional doctrine of hell. Um, so like what is the traditional doctrine? And then like is Wesley's view of love consistent with the idea of like a traditional doctrine of hell? So here's the big idea with the traditional doctrine of hell. So the claim is that God ultimately defeats evil by sending by sending the damned to face eternal conscious torment. So everybody who goes to hell, they're gonna they're gonna be suffering, they're gonna be very aware, very aware of their suffering forever and ever on bed. And that's how God defeats evil. So in the traditional view, the damned, they cannot sin. They can no longer sin because they're like, they're, their fate is sealed. They are no longer able to rebel. They cannot even repent. They are no longer, they can do nothing but just bear their punishment for all eternity. And so that's why you have evil ultimately defeated on this view. Now, so the traditional doctrine of hell, like it does give us the ultimate defeat of evil. So it gives us one of those things that Jordan needs, but, it, but Jordan also wants to make sure that his theory of hell is consistent with the tree of love. And I want to say this one doesn't. And, and Jordan says the same thing. He says, he makes this very clear that, that this is going to be inconsistent with the trio of love because it diverges from one or more of the trio of values. And so he's going to say that's sufficient grounds for rejecting the traditional doctrine of hell. So here's the idea. So on the traditional doctrine of hell, the damned, they are prevented from flourishing and they're also prevented from having friendship with God. And so that's a divergence from two of the three values of love. And so since Jordan's whole idea is divergence from love is bad, that's reason to reject a theory of hell. Well, the traditional doctrine of hell diverges from two of the three values of love. So that's reason to reject it. So we're going to have to look elsewhere to see how God can ultimately defeat evil without diverging from love. Hmm. So I like how you're coming back to this idea of like defeating evil. So you're going to say like under like a traditional doctrine of hell, like, um, there still is no like full defeat of evil um, because like the, there's still like the damned forever. Um, and that like, that's what's inconsistent with like divine love. Do I have you right? Well, no. So on the traditional view, the claim is you do get a defeat of evil because everybody, mm -hmm. all the people who are sitting, like they're not allowed to continue rebelling. They're just, all they can do is just accept their punishment. That's it. Like they don't, mm -hmm. they're not rebelling on the traditional doctrine of hell. Uh, so the, sin is supposed to be ultimately defeated because sin is being punished and no one's continuing to sin. Yeah. But you just don't get any consistency with divine love because can these people have friendship with God? Well, no, they're prevented from it. And so God, you can't really say God like values friendship with them when he throws them in a place where they can't possibly have any friendship with him. And mm -hmm. you can't say God values flourishing with these people because he's put them in a place where they, they literally cannot flourish at all. So you get defeat of evil. That's cool. You do not get all three values of divine love. So on Jordan's analysis, it's got to go. It can't be right. Okay, that's helpful, Ryan. So we're mm -hmm. looking at the idea of like saying like, um, like under a traditional doctrine, like it seems like 
like having them just like be there forever. Um, like that's inconsistent with God, like valuing their flourishing and like desiring relationship with them. Cause it's kind of yeah. like they're put in a situation like where they can't flourish and they yep. can't have a relationship with God. Yeah. Okay. That's right. That's yeah. Super great. So we got the traditional doctrine and like, there's some problems with it. What's like a modified doctrine of hell. And like, is Wesley's view of love consistent with this? Yeah. So this is the view that Wesling wants to endorse. He's really explicit about this. He wants this modified view. You see something like this also in Jerry Wall's work and C.S. Lewis's work. So here's the idea. So God sends people to hell in order to punish them. But, and this is a very big, but the damned in hell, they have the opportunity to repent and to reform and then eventually enter into heaven. So you seems like you do get the consistency with divine love because God values their existence because he keeps them going forever and ever. He values uh, their flourishing and, and friendship with them because he continually gives them opportunity to repent and to reform and flourish and enter into friendship with God. So you've got all the consistency with divine love. That's cool. What I can point out though, is you don't get the consistency with the ultimate defeat of evil because since the damned in hell, they continue to reject God forever and ever amen like like that's the this this view uh leaves open the possibility that there will be people in hell who forever and ever continue to reject god and if that's the case then you never get an ultimate defeat of evil mm. so you get the love actually, but you don't get the defeat of evil mm -hmm. that's that's interesting ryan because like when i thought about like hell making sense of like if there's an eternal model like what makes sense this is the only view I've really come to that, like, I can, like, get my mind around and say, like, hey, there's mm -hmm. something here where um, it can make sense. But, like, what you're saying is we're pushing back on this, and you're saying that kind of, like, there is no ultimate defeat of evil because we're going back or going forward a million, trillion, gazillion years. Like, there is people, like, sinners rejecting God. Um, yep. What if, like, someone wants to just say, like, so what, Ryan? Like, maybe that's not, like, a full, complete, like, no evils defeated, um, but we still have, like, the people in hell and whatnot. Like, how would you respond to someone that's just kind of, like, so what? Like, who cares? Yeah, so, I, so I'm getting this argument originally from this woman named Iona Patsaladu, and she's looking at Eleanor Stump's account because Eleanor Stump wants to do something similar. And she goes, well, look, I mean, you could just reject what the Bible says, and that's fine. Mm. Um, so you could be like, yeah, so what? The Bible's just wrong. God just will not ultimately defeat evil. Mm -hmm. <laughs> not I mean, ideal. If you're a Christian, I mean, you might say certain passages you want to reject or something, but like going like, God's just not going to ultimately defeat evil. That sounds pretty bad. Um, mm -hmm. It also, I mean, you could try to say, well, God ultimately defeats evil for those in heaven, but not ultimately defeats evil full stop. Mm -hmm. I, I, I've had this suggestion uh, given to me uh, more recently. One of my friends in Italy, uh, when we were hanging out, uh, we had this debate we were doing in Italy and that this was raised to me. And I was like, it still sounds like God ultimately defeated evil, except for that, you know, huge part over there in the world. Don't look over there. God doesn't like to talk about it. You know, like it just, it just sounds, I don't know. It just doesn't, I, I just don't think it sounds right uh, to say God defeats evil, except for all that evil that exists there. Mm -hmm. He defeats evil just for the people in heaven. So you mentioned like scriptural passages a lot to kind of show a defeat of evil, like to help listeners, like just fully understand, like what, what passages are you referring to when we're talking about like the defeat of evil? So mainly I'm looking at the very end of Revelation. So Revelation 21 and 22, where you've got this claim that one day there will be no more tears. There'll be no more sin, no more evil. Uh, and then you, when you go through the gospels as well, you, you continually, continually see Jesus talk about the present age is, described in terms of sin, sickness, and death. That's the present age, but the age to come 
you know, when the son of man is fully revealed, those things will pass away. So when you read throughout the gospels, you see this pretty consistently. And then when you look at the last two chapters of revelation, you see it really explicitly as well that, you know, and then you, God's like, just like, he's throwing like the devil into the lake of fire. You know, he's like, he's like kicking butt and taking names. He's just like, he's cleaning house. Like that's, that's what you see at the end of revelation. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's super helpful. Thanks, Ryan. So we talked about a modified doctrine. Um, like what is annihilationism and like, is Wesley's view consistent um, with this when we're looking at divine love? So annihilationism is really popular today for whatever reason. I've never found the appeal to it. But here's the idea. So the, you, you get the ultimate defeat of evil because God eradicates the damned from existence. So in some cases, some accounts of annihilationism, it's the damned, they go there and God's like I'm punishing you for a little bit and then you're going to cease to exist. On some other accounts, people in, who go to hell, they have the option to continue to repent, and go to heaven uh, or just cease to exist. And God's like, yeah, I'm just going to let you cease to exist. Um, so either way, the, the claim from annihilationism, you do get the ultimate defeat of evil. Cool. But I want to go, you don't get, you don't get anything uh, that's consistent with love. And in fact, I think you lose all three values of love. I think it's inconsistent with all three values of love. Here's how it goes. So first, God, I don't think you can say God values the existence of a person if God eradicates that person from existence. Seems pretty obvious. Second, God cannot be said to value the flourishing of a person if God eradicates that person from existence, because you can't flourish if you don't exist. And then third, God can't say that he values friendship with that person if he eradicates her from existence, because usually you don't put people in the friend zone by annihilating them from existence. Like, that's just not what you do, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I just kind of gather that if God annihilates you from existence, he's just really not that into you. He just doesn't really care about like having friendship with you. So annihilationism, it, just, it diverges from all three, uh, all three values of love. A and since Jordan's given this analysis of any divergence from, from love is bad, well, you've diverged from all three like values of love. I mean, this is as bad as it gets. So this view, you get the defeat of evil, I guess, but you don't get anything that's remotely consistent with the all three values of divine love. Uh, so it's, it's just, it's gotta be false. Mm. That's super helpful, Ryan. So the problem is that like, like annihilating someone from existence just seems like flatly incompatible with like this view of divine love because it's not really like valuing their existence or friendship with them mm. or like things along these lines. So, I mean, I think that's pretty straightforward. If like, if you're going to buy into Leslie's view of like what it means for God to love us and like annihilating them, annihilating us, we kind of like go just like very blatantly against that. So yeah. yeah I think that's great. And, and I think it also, it goes against other biblical themes too. So even if you don't quite like uh, Jordan's account of love, there's there's a lot of other other claims. So Richard Middleton is a Old Testament scholar. His analysis of what he's looking at when he's talking about new creation, heaven and earth and all this, he has this slogan that he boils down all of biblical theology to. God doesn't create junk and God doesn't junk what he creates. So everything that God creates has value. And God is not interested in just completely throwing all that stuff away into the garbage heap. God really wants to set, like salvage all of it. And so I think that's a very consistent biblical claim. And I think annihilationism doesn't sit very well with that. So even if you don't like Jordan's account of divine love, I think you're going to have other problems with some other biblical themes that, which is seems like God really values these things and he's not, he's not, not interested in getting rid of them. Mm, yeah. Well, that's super helpful. So thanks for that, Ryan. So we talked about like um, this view of divine love and like you think it entails universalism. 
Um, maybe do you want to flesh that out just a little bit more to like kind of leave people with? Like, why do you think like this divine love is going to really give us universalism? Yeah. So basically all I did in this paper and then like today is just go, it seems like this view of, uh, of love entails universalism because you get the defeat of evil and you've got consistency with all three of the values of love. But someone could come along and be like, well, there's other theories of hell that you could affirm. And I've gone, okay, well, here's the most popular ones. You've got this traditional doctrine of hell, modified doctrine of hell, and annihilationism. None of those get you a defeat of evil and consistency with all three values of love. So the only option left is annihilationism. I mean, someone could push back and come up with some other other view. And Jordan has a response. I haven't read his response yet, though. Um, but but that's the that's the basic strategy is to go. You don't have any other options other than universalism if you want defeat of evil and consistency with with love. All the other options they they're gone. But yeah. so what you have to do, I think, is come up with another option. Hmm. So by process of elimination, like universalism, like that's what's left because everything else is going to like uh, go against like a defeat of evil or like this account of divine love. Okay. Yeah. Well, Ryan, this has been super great. Um, maybe let's let's do this to help viewers kind of like see a picture here. Like, I don't really know fully where you are on the whole like universalist thing. Maybe you're full fledged, like you lean to it, or like whatever. But like, given like what we've talked about here, um, if we're making sense of like a universalist, like a universal, I don't even know if it's a word, a universalistic, um, a universalist like st like story of eschatology. What does that kind of look like in your mind? If we're going to flesh out a story of like, what's going to like predict the future here, Ryan, like mm -hmm. what's it going to look like? I don't know. I don't know. I would love for universalism to be true. Uh, some days of the week, other days of the week, <laughs> there are some people I'm like, no, they, they, they do. They <laughs> screw them. Like I'll be mad. Yeah. Even there. Mm -hmm. So I ultimately don't know. So this is one writing this paper was part of a process for me of just trying to go, I don't know, how do I want to think about these issues? So mm -hmm. uh, I am quite attracted to the modified doctrine of hell that, that we talked about earlier. Yeah. That's the one that makes the most sense to me that leaves open the door for people who call it hopefully universalism, that hopefully all of hell will be emptied. Um, whereas when I really consistently hold that view, I don't find myself to be a hopeful universalist. I find myself very pessimistic because I look at some people in this world and they are so stubborn that I can easily imagine them just rejecting God forever and ever. Amen. Uh, mm -hmm. And then there are some other people who I just, they're just, they're so wicked. I, I just can easily see them just continuing in wickedness forever and ever. So I don't know. I don't know how to get out of the problem that I've laid out for Jordan. Uh, I don't feel super confident about universalism. I would like it to be, but I don't feel super confident about it. So this is a deeply dissatisfying way to end this video is maybe just going, <laughs> I don't know, something happens. Hopefully it's yeah. good stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think that's that's fair like we don't like come here and hopefully people don't just like click on this video i'm like i'm gonna get all the answers to hell and universalism in one video and yeah. boom we're done um i hope that's helpful for people to realize like like we got this like full-fledged like famous like theologian philosopher dude um he doesn't have all the answers and we don't have to um yeah. and it's like looking at this and like getting your take on it and yeah i mean i think that's great brian i would think i would probably like looking at this i kind of lean with towards you maybe a little less pessimistic but definitely there's some days i am um and just think like I, you probably have to deny like wesleyan's account of divine love is what it seems like you'd have to do if you want to hold to some sort of like traditional modified doctrine of hell um but i i don't know that seems like it because when jordan and i were talking about it again i have not read his response yet but when he was thinking through the response he was like well, what if like the most loving thing to do is to put someone out of their misery 
you know, like, like there might be some cases where someone's just in such a miserable state, the, like the most loving act to do is to put them out of their misery. And I was like, that's fine, but you still have a divergence from all those values you've talked about. So mm -hmm. what you might need to do is go, these values are really cool, but it's not the whole story of love because there might be different situations where you have to weight those values differently. And we already do this anyway. So when you want to be friends with different people or have a good loving relationship with your, your children, for instance, if you're, if you're a parent, there are different points where you start weighting these things differently. You value the flourishing of your children. So you might send them off to a, like a school that's really far away because you know that's going to help them flourish. That's going to mean that your friendship with them, it takes a hit for a while. So there's different ways of kind of weighting some of these values in different situations. So it might be the case that you reject this trio of of love account, you give it more nuance and talk in terms of there's other values that you have to factor in and you have to weight them at different points. That might help. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. Well, it's definitely a challenging question for sure. Yeah. We don't have to have all the answers. Um, so Ryan, thank you so much for joining me. Like how can people like follow you, connect with you and things like that? So I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. Um, anytime a new social media uh, thing pops up because people get angry at either Facebook or Twitter, I usually start an account there, but do nothing with it because those <laughs> social media accounts never go anywhere. Um, I also have my website, rtmullins.com, where you can find my podcast, the Reluctant Theologian podcast, and most of my papers I try to put up there when, I, when I'm able to. Uh, I've written a lot of stuff that I can't always put up there for copyright issues, but I try to put up a lot of stuff so people can have free access to what I'm working on. Mm. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate you and your work and everything you're doing. Um, I find it super cool and fun, and you're always a pleasure to talk to. Um, so I enjoyed a lot. And yeah, it's been great. I encourage people to check out Ryan, follow his work. There'll be a link down below with how you can follow him and connect with him and all that fun stuff. And yeah, this is here in Apologetics. If you're new, feel free to subscribe, leave a like, um, all that fun stuff. And we'll catch you next time. If you value what we do, uh, go become a patron at patreon.com slash here in Apologetics. That's that. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been great. Thank you. All right. Have a good one, everyone, and God bless.